This morning we're going to continue in the story of Noah, and it's Genesis chapter 9, although I would like to start reading at chapter 8, verse 20, when they disembarked from the ark. Uh, We read in chapter 8, verse 20, and this is from the the New Living Translation, and we'll read through into chapter 9. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed on it the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the earth, destroying all living things, even though people's thoughts and actions are bent towards evil from childhood. As long as the earth remains, there will be springtime and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, multiply and fill the earth. All the wild animals, large and small, and all the birds and fish will be afraid of you. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat animals that still have their lifeblood in them. And murder is forbidden. Animals that kill people must die, and any person who murders must be killed. Yes, you must execute anyone who murders another person. For to kill a person is to kill a living being made in God's image. Now you must have children and repopulate the earth. Yes, multiply and fill the earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I am making a covenant with you and your descendants and with the animals you brought with you, all these birds and livestock and wild animals. I solemnly promise never to send another flood to kill all living creatures and destroy the earth. And God said, I am giving you a sign as evidence of my eternal covenant with you and all living creatures. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of permanent promise to you and to all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will be seen in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with everything that lives. Never again will there be a flood that will destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, yes, This is the sign of my covenant with all the creatures of the earth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, survived the flood with their father. Ham is the ancestor of the Canaanites. From these three sons of Noah came all the people now scattered across the earth. After the flood, Noah became a farmer and planted a vineyard. One day, 
he became drunk on some wine he had made and lay naked in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, walked backwards into the tent and covered their father's naked body. As they did this, they looked the other way so they wouldn't see him naked. When Noah woke up from his drunken stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham, a curse on the Canaanites. May they be the lowest of servants to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Then Noah said, May Shem be blessed by the Lord my God, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge the territory of Japheth, and may he share the prosperity of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the flood. He was 950 years old when he died. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Um, when Andrew first asked me, would you take the next part in the series on the story of uh, Genesis, uh, initially I said, yes, that's fine. Then I looked at chapter 9, and I thought, oh, I could have had an easier chapter than this. And all kinds of thoughts began to flood into my mind as I thought about possible themes to take from this chapter and explore. What about vegetarianism? What about capital punishment, ecology? Abortion, euthanasia, other issues about ending of life. What about creation care and the stewardship that we're entrusted with? What about alcohol abuse, which appears here in Genesis? Animal welfare, all kinds of issues connected with that. What about family life and what this story tells us about family life? And public indecency. So I thought I'd take 10 minutes in each of these... <laughs> No, I would not sub subject you to that. And these are just some of the topical issues that come out from Genesis 9. It's quite amazing how much is there in Scripture and in this fairly short passage. And then when you begin to touch on some of the theological issues that emerge from this chapter, there's judgment and salvation. There's a baptismal theology that I think Andrew referred to in his sermon last week when he talked about the ark being used in the New Testament as a symbol of baptism. There's the whole nature of thinking about the people of God, who they are and uh, their purpose and significance in God's plan. There's the new creation. They step out from the ark into a new world, a world that's quite unfamiliar and in some ways anticipating the ultimate new creation that we've been singing about today. And there's the whole issue of how this story prepares us for Jesus. So where to begin with all that? So I thought I'll begin with a story. Let me take you back to the 6th of June, 1882, to the Church of Scotland Manse in Inellin, near Dunoon on the uh, the west side of Scotland, the Firth of Clyde. The minister of the church is 40, 
He's in his manse on his own on a Saturday. It should have been a very happy day because it was the day of his sister's wedding. But for him, it was anything but a happy occasion. He was a distinguished scholar at university when he attended University of Glasgow. And he excelled as he studied divinity. There he met a young woman whom he came to love, and they became engaged. But he had a problem with his eyesight. And when eventually it was reckoned that his condition was incurable, and he would eventually become blind, his fiancée broke off the engagement because, she said, she couldn't cope with the thought of being married to someone who was blind for the rest of her life. His sister and he shared a home. She became his companion and help in the household duties while he ministered through the growing blindness that was descending upon him. But on the day his sister was to be married, he felt the loneliness of his situation. And he withdrew into his study that Saturday night and he felt totally uh, abject. He said there was real mental stress going on and he didn't know what to do. Minister of a church. And as he sat in his study, God met with him and he wrote a hymn, the hymn we sang just a few minutes ago, O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. George Matheson was the man. And when you go back and read the lyrics of that song again, that hymn, There are so many illusions to light and darkness. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. And here's what he said as he remembered that night. He said, the hymn was the fruit of my suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of it being dictated to me by some inward voice. He said the whole thing was completed in five minutes. It came like a day spring from on high. What George Matheson discovered is what Noah and his family discovered. That with God, tragedy and disaster Do not have the last word. That's not the end of the story. The cataclysmic flood that brought such devastation and that you were thinking about last week was not the end of God's story with these people whom he had rescued by instructing them to build the ark. Tragedy and disaster are not the end. The dark clouds might gather, but the rainbows appear as a sign and a symbol of God's presence. And so I wanted today to focus our thoughts 
on the God who is both the God of grace and the God of glory. And here I'm borrowing a title of another older hymn, On Your People, Pour Your Power. God of grace and God of glory. And as we look at chapter 9, I want to do that in three sections and to suggest that we see reflections in each of these of this God that George Matheson proved to be faithful and true to him throughout the rest of his life, and the God who met with Noah and who can meet with us as we respond to him. First of all, in chapter 9, in verses 1 to 7, there's the twice-repeated command. In verse 1, then again in verse 7, multiply and fill the earth. Here's a new world that's facing Noah and his family. And God gives them the command to go out and to fill it with people. God is the God of grace and of glory. Judgment has come, but judgment is never the last word. The judgment of the flood gives way to the new beginning that Noah and his family now have the opportunity to engage with and to explore and to develop. And it's interesting, when they come out of the ark, their first act at the end of chapter 8 is to build an altar and worship. And the first time we sang this morning borrows some of the language from that passage in Genesis chapter 8. As long as the earth remains, there will be springtime and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. Part of the worship that went on when they first came out of the ark. And then after they worship, God gives them the command. And when you begin to unpack the command, it's, it's actually quite interesting. It talks about a new beginning. It talks about uh, filling the earth. It talks about animals being given to Noah and his family in their power. And they can be used for food just as he'd given grain and vegetables. It talks about dietary changes it talks about the sanctity of life and the realization that there will be violence as part of this new earth. You can leave the old earth behind, but in this new world that Noah and his family are facing, human sinfulness is still a factor that's got to be reckoned with. And so the command is given, and it shows that there's no way back to Eden. They can't go back to the way it was, the way it used to be. This is a new time. This is a new opportunity. Judgment has, in a sense, swept aside what was there before. Now there's a new beginning. Now there are changes and differences that they have to cope with, but the same God is the God who was there in the beginning and the God who wants to give them a fresh start. I don't know where you are uh, this morning, but this principle, uh, I think, is something we often experience in our lives. There are times when it seems that the dark clouds are gathering over us, and we're not sure what's going to happen. 
But that's never God's final word in our lives. He's the God of new beginnings, the God of new opportunities, the God who brings solemn words to us, but whose command is to go and live, to live in the life that He provides, to nurture and cherish that life and to hold it as a sacred trust from Him and to enjoy His blessing as we go and trust and prove as Noah and his family did that God is faithful. Then in verses 8 to 17, the story of the rainbow, uh, the words of the covenant, the first covenant that appears in the Bible. The first mention of the covenant is in the story of Noah, chapter 6, and then that continues. And it's interesting that God says, I'm making a covenant, verse 8, with you and your descendants and with the animals you brought with you. You ever noticed that before? God's concern for the whole of his creation, with all that lives and breathes here on this planet Earth. There's a covenant promise in verse 11. I solemnly promise never to send another flood to kill all creatures. The covenant sign in verse 13 is the rainbow and the covenant assurance that echoes the sermon from last Sunday. Twice in this passage, again God says, when I see the rainbow, I will remember. I will remember. And all of this comes from God. He's the one who initiates the covenant. He makes this agreement. He commits himself to it. And he's absolutely trustworthy, absolutely dependable. For as we learned earlier, God is faithful. I don't know if you realize that the only three other occasions in Scripture where rainbows feature come in Ezekiel and then in the book of Revelation. Three references, Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28, Revelation 4, 3 and 10, 1. And in each of these references, there's allusion to the throne of God and to a rainbow around the throne of God, where you have these two ideas of judgment and salvation God's righteous acts and His mercy combined. Um, You know, as I was preparing this sermon, um, where my my study is in my house in Pitlochry, I have a lovely view out over the hills. And it had been raining, and it was quite dark and gloomy. And then I looked out the window, and suddenly there was a beautiful, brilliant rainbow. And I thought, thank you, Lord. You know, that's just what I needed. And I got my camera out and took a few pictures of it because it was so brilliant. But you know this, that the best rainbows are seen against the darkest skies. When the sky is really dark, that's when the brilliance and the vibrancy of these rainbow colors can be appreciated to their full extent. And even though you take wonderful pictures, I don't, but I'll enjoy doing it. Even though you take wonderful pictures, you can never replicate the reality of seeing it there. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's telling us 
that God is faithful. He's the God who gives us commands to go and live and enter into the fullness of life. He provides for us. He's the God who makes covenant with us, who wants to bless us, who wants us to walk with him, who longs to take us and draw us close to him and to shower his grace upon us. He's the God of grace and the God of glory. There's a lovely illustration of this uh, in David Atkinson's excellent little book on Genesis. He talks about the fact that the term used for God putting his rainbow in clouds is the same term that would be used for a warrior hanging up his bow after battle. It's as if God hangs up his rainbow, and there it is. In a sense, the battle, the judgment is over. Here's a new day. Here's a new opportunity. We need to redeem the rainbow today. Um, The LGBT community have seized on it as a symbol of their cause. We need to redeem it and say, this is a symbol of God's amazing covenant that he made with Noah and his sons, and all the animals on the earth. This is God's blessing. This is God's anticipation of the new covenant that he would make with us through Jesus, the covenant that offers us forgiveness and eternal life and hope that goes way beyond this world into the new heavens and new earth that we sang about earlier on this morning. This is the God we can trust, for he is faithful. And that brings us to verses 18 to 29. Now, this is one of these passages in the Bible that if I had been editing Genesis, I think I would have taken my pen and just scored through it and said, let's just leave this section out. You know, when you have heroes and you discover that your heroes are very fallible, sinful people. It can be soul-destroying. Noah is held up in Hebrews 11 as one of the great heroes of faith. What on earth possessed this man to build an ark when he was miles and miles from the nearest sea? Faith. What an illustration of hearing from God and obeying God. He's the first man to do something like that. He's the first man to receive this covenant promise and blessing from God. And he's the first drunk in the Bible too. He comes out of the ark with his family. He becomes a farmer, plants a vineyard. So this is sometime after they disembark. Vines take time to grow and grapes to appear. And he makes wine from the grapes and he gets drunk and he strips off all his clothes for drunk people do things they would not ever think of doing when they're not drunk. He loses his own dignity and he lies in his tent naked. And it's his youngest son, Ham, who discovers him. And you might think that when we talk about the curse And it's Ham and his descendants who experience the wrath of the curse that Noah utters. You might think it's a bit harsh on Ham and on his son Canaan 
And it's the Canaanites who become the, the force of Noah's prophetic and judgmental words. But it's likely that if you read the nuances in this story, that when Ham saw his father in that state, um, he seems to have gone outside with the, the, the kind of attitude to say to his brothers, you'll never guess. Come and see the old fella. He's lying in there, starkers. Come on. He broadcast it. That's, that's the implication, the impression that the text gives that he did not show dutiful care, even though it was Noah's fault, even though he had done it, he'd got himself drunk, he was lying naked. He doesn't do anything to say, let's, let's cover that up. And it's Shem and Japheth who turn their, their heads away as they walk into the tent with a blanket and they walk backwards. <coughs> At that time, Nakedness was something that was shameful, except in the intimacy of marriage and the unique relationship that that brought. Uh, so for people to be caught naked was awful. It was not nice. It was socially unacceptable. And so they walk backwards with the sheet and they cover their father's nakedness. And as a consequence, they receive his blessing in verses 26 and 27, while Ham and his son Canaan receive the curse on the Canaanites. May they be the lowest of servants, verse 25, to the descendants of Shem and Japheth. It's an unsavory story. And Part of me wishes it wasn't there, but part of me rejoices that it is there in the Bible. For the Bible never conceals the warts that people have. Oliver Cromwell, when he wanted to be painted, said, warts and all. Paint it like it is. Tell it like it is. And the Bible's like that. It tells it like it is. It doesn't hide from the reality. And it doesn't cover the sinfulness that all of us can be subject to. Even the greatest servants of God are displayed as they truly were. Even the Noahs of this life have their faults and their sinful failings. And the curse comes to Ham and his descendants. And already in this part of Genesis, we see that, that sin has been judged in the flood, but it's not been jettisoned. It's still there. It's still a reality. And even here at the beginning, we see the ethnic tensions that are still part of the story in the Middle East today. The political and military machinations that go on almost incessantly. And so much of it can be traced back to the tensions and the squabbles and the difficulties that are envisaged in the semi-prophetic, semi-judgmental language that Noah uses. And the Canaanites uh, in history became one of the chief stumbling blocks for the people of Israel, uh, not least because of the practices they indulged in, their beliefs, and their sexual immoral behavior. 
So it's an unsavory story, and it tells us, whatever else it tells us, that sin has consequences, that sin is ever-present, that sin brings curse. And we all know that if we're facing reality. But it also holds out the hope that the God who's working in and even through this story is the God who offers hope and salvation that will ultimately come to people of all nations, even though there will be the, the choice of the chosen people that will emerge as we go on in Genesis. Yet one day, descendants of Shem and Japheth, yes, and even Ham, will be able to know some of the blessings of God, some of the hope of the new covenant. For one day, someone will come who will take all the curses upon himself. As Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole or on a tree. So there's a curse in Genesis. And maybe that anticipates the curse that will come and that will fall on Jesus when he himself voluntarily accepts it on behalf of all of us. So the cross is there, right back in Genesis. God of grace and God of glory, who commands us to go faith to go forward with the life that he provides, who invites us into a covenant with all the blessings that the covenant brings, and who offers to deal with whatever curse sin has brought in our lives and sin holds over us. He's the God who's faithful. He's the God of new beginnings. He's the God who always opens up new opportunities when we trust in Him and look to Him. He's the God who brings us through Jesus into a new creation that outshines all that Noah and his family discovered, and a new creation that anticipates the ultimate new heaven and new earth that one day will come about. The God of grace and the God of glory, the God of the rainbow, the God of George Matheson, and he can be our God too. Let's pray together. Our Father God, who is faithful and loving, who is judge and saviour, we worship you. We thank you for your word, for all the seed thoughts it contains, and for the message that it brings to us. May we meet with you as the living and true God. May we give our lives over to you as George Matheson did, and find in you that the flow of our lives is richer and fuller than it could ever be elsewhere. May we know your faithfulness in our lives, whatever we face, whatever the struggles we are, and see your rainbow against the dark clouds that sometimes gather. And Lord, may we confess our sins to you and not hide them from you. 
but allow you to deal with them through our Lord Jesus Christ as we repent and as we turn from them. Forgive us all that we've done and said and thought that is not of you. And redeem us and give us that new hope, that renewal that we long for, that opportunity to go forward, no longer encumbered by sin and its curse, but set free to live and to breathe as children of God, citizens of heaven, those who belong to your kingdom. So we thank you for your word, and we pray that it will be sown in our lives and bring fruit to your praise and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.